Please stand for the reading of the word from Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through his spirit that dwells in you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good to have you here with us. I hope you're in that kind of middle phase of the beginning of the new year. At my house, what that looks like is we're cleaning up Christmas lights and putting away decorations, and we're kind of getting ready for school to start again and kind of looking forward to the new change. Maybe that's already happened for you, and you're back to kind of the, the, the rhythm of your, your work or your vocation or whatever it is you're doing. Regardless of that, we're glad that you're here today. I have a friend named Josh Ross. He's a fantastic preacher in Memphis. And he was giving a, a keynote address at, at one of the big lectures. And, and he, he, was, he did it over Romans chapter 8. And, and that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. And I want to encourage you to read Romans chapter 8 sometime this week. Read the whole thing from beginning to end. It's not going to take you more than <coughs> two minutes to do the whole thing. But read Romans 8 and, and, and just listen to it and let it soak through you because I want you to see kind of the, the big picture of the story and I want you to follow the argument that Paul's going to make. And so read the whole thing. Anyway, uh, Ross was talking at this big event and he, and he was talking about the importance of Romans 8. And he, and he imagined that there was this, this preacher that shows up you know, in, in heaven, and he's, he's going to the pearly gates, and, and Peter meets them there, and he says, look, we're going to let you in, but we have a few questions first. Peter begins by saying, you spent eight weeks in Obadiah, but you didn't preach on Romans chapter 8. What's up with that, man? He said, you spent a lot of time looking through Jude, 14-week sermon series, but you didn't preach Romans 8. We'll let you in, but just barely. And, and as a preacher, and I had been preaching then for about three years, <coughs> preacher then, and, uh, and I thought to myself, I've never preached in Romans 8. Well, here's my chance. Here's our chance. 
So I want you to commit to being here. Commit to reading Romans 8 and all the way through one time this week. But I want you to look to the person that, that you showed up with today. Look to the person that you live with, whoever that is, and look to them and say, okay, we're going to make it. We're going to commit ourselves to be here for the next three weeks. And if you came here by yourself, you have people that you can make that kind of commitment to. Commit to coming to church for the next three weeks. Because what we're going to do is important. Romans 8 is the heart of the gospel. Now, all scripture is useful, all scripture is valuable to life, but there are some parts of scripture that are more valuable than others. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount is a peak in the topography of scripture. I believe the middle of Ephesians is a peak, it's a summit in the topography of the New Testament. Romans chapter eight matters. And so I want you to be here. And I want you to journey with us as we learn about the heart of God who loves you so desperately that he sent his son to ransom you from death. Before we jump into the word today, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to be gathered here. We're grateful for this place. <coughs> we're grateful for this word. We're grateful for the way that you have bought us from slavery, redeemed us from the life in the pit. And now, Father, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. All right, so I, this week I went to the, the funeral of, of one of my uncles, Uncle Richie. He lived and died in a little town in southern Indiana called Bloomfield. And Bloomfield is so small that if you type that into your Google Maps, you have to scroll down a page before you can find Bloomfield, Indiana, because Google Maps thinks there's about eight other Bloomfields that are more important than this little town. And my Uncle Richie was um, on his obituary. And, and the first thing it said, he said, a lifelong member of the Bloomfield Church of Christ and a lifelong member of the NRA, which was curious to me, and I, so I wanted to know more. I hadn't been back to Bloomfield probably in 25 years. This is who my Uncle Richie was. When I was eight years old, my Uncle Richie bought me for my birthday an Israeli gas mask that fit a child. And I thought that was the most awesome gift that you could give a kid ever. And now I sit back and think like, okay, what exactly was, was in this gift? What did this mean? My Uncle Richie bought a gun dealer's license, not because he wanted to sell guns, but because it, it allowed him to own more guns. My Aunt Bonnie thinks that my Uncle Richie had about 400 guns in his possession at the day he died, which is a lot. If you went down to his basement, there was just this wall of safes, and they were all filled. I don't know if you've ever seen that old Kevin Bacon movie, Trimmers, where the worm busts through the wall, and they scroll over, and they showed that basement that was just lined with guns. That was my Uncle Richie. He was kind of like the gun Santa for Bloomfield, Indiana, because there was this um, kids muzzle-loading uh, shot uh, rifle association. And at the, if, you, if you were a child in that town and you went through the program and you got your gun safety badge, he would give you a, a gun, a, a muzzle-loading rifle that he had built by himself. And I can tell you, two or three people at the funeral came up to me and told me the story that 
he had given them this gun when he was, they were a child, and this one woman said, you know, I was so little I couldn't hold it up all the way, and so he cut the barrel down, and then I was shooting better than all the boys. She felt amazing. This was my Uncle Richie. My Uncle Richie and my mom both came from a non-institutional, non-cooperative Church of Christ, which meant that when I introduced myself as a preacher, I was immediately suspect. I thought it would gain me credibility. I was suspect because they don't have preachers, they have evangelists. Now, I feel that because sometimes when somebody calls me a pastor, I'm like, uh, but, so I get where they're coming from, but the, the evangelist that was at his funeral was giving you kind of the eulogy that I just gave you, a good man. He loved to wear his V-necks and his flannel shirts unbuttoned. That was his uniform with some dirty jeans, and he wore that everywhere, seven days a week. There was an argument in my extended family about whether or not he should be buried in a white V-neck with a flannel on top. And he didn't care what day it was. He didn't care if he was going to church or going to work or going out to his farm. That was what he was wearing. That's who he was. And the evangelist made the turn to say, but that's not only who he was. He was also a child of God, a son and a daughter of the king. But, the evangelist continued, Uncle Richie, or he said Richie Whitman, was also a sinner. And that made me pause for a second in the, in the funeral. I thought, what, what's this about? And I began going into kind of like theological preacher mode and thinking about, okay, what, what is he trying to get at? What is he trying to say? And here's the thing. What the evangelist said was the truth. My uncle was a lot of great things. A caring man who lived and died in a small town. But he was also a sinner. But more importantly, my uncle was a, a child of God. Bloomfield's changed a lot since the last time I was there. I remember going as a kid, and uh, yeah, Bloomfield's a lot like Anson. You know, when you drive up through Anson, there's a county courthouse, and it's kind of got a square ring of small businesses around it, and then, you know, half a mile out on the other side, you're, you're out of the town. That's what Bloomfield is like, except now, when I, we were driving back, and there's a lot of those small towns in Indiana, they're just drying up. And so you drove through that, that square in the center of town, and, and most of those businesses were boarded up or for rent. The only thing that was really thriving in that little square was a Dollar General. And if you lived in Bloomfield, you either got your groceries at the Dollar General or the 7-Eleven, or you had to drive to another town. They can't even afford a grocery store anymore. And there was a difference, I noticed, between the cousins that had stayed in that town and the cousins that had left and gone to Nashville or to other cities, there was, a, there was a marked difference in the two of them. There was something about that town and its demise. There was something about that evangelist telling us that my uncle was a sinner that strikes deep to the heart of the gospel. In order for us to understand Romans chapter 8, we've got to understand a little bit of Romans chapter 7. And we've got to be able to talk about sin. At the end of Romans chapter 7, what Paul needs this church in Rome to know is that there is a dark mass. There is a malignancy inside of every human. 
It's what Paul calls another law at work within us, waging war. And it doesn't matter if you're judged as a sinner or if you're a saint. It doesn't matter if you live a life like Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr. or just a normal person. That dark mass of selfishness and pride, it will destroy yourself. It will corrupt the image of God you bear, and it will twist every relationship into self-serving manipulation. It is the way it is. It's just the reality that we live in. And remember, the point of Romans that Paul is going to address is, is not just about the grace of God. And Paul is writing this letter, and it's kind of unique because this is the only letter in the New Testament that he writes to that he, isn't, he hasn't planted the church. And so he has to take a different tone than the tone he took before. In Galatians, he kind of opens up the letter by saying, you guys are a bunch of idiots. I don't know what's going on here, but you're messing everything up. He can't say that in Romans. But some of our scholars believe that what's happening in, in Rome at the time is that there are a lot of house churches. And the reason we know that is because in Romans 16, there's this list of names of all these different leaders, upwards from eight to maybe even more than a dozen house churches that exist in this city. But at some point, the, uh, the mayor or the leaders of Rome have kicked out all the Jews. Now, at the time, a Roman leader wouldn't really know the difference between a Jew and a Christian. And so a Jew that said, I'm not a Jew, I'm a Christian, they wouldn't care. They'd say, your ethnicity is Jewish. And they just kicked them all out. Now, before then, I imagine that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians have had trouble getting along just because they come from diff some different places, such different environments. It's me looking at my uncle's gun safe and wondering why. It's him looking at my skinny jeans and wondering why. Just come from different places. And so what Paul, what happens is, is that the Jews have to leave and then they're allowed to come back. But Gentile Christians, they've been running things for a while, a couple years, three or four years. And they're like, you know, it's good to have you back, but we've, we're kind of good. We're kind of settled now. We like the way the church runs. We don't exactly need you. You're welcome to start the Roman Southside Church of Christ. And Paul writes this letter partially because he wants help to continue his mission, but also to address the malignancy of sin that's happening in that community. That God's intent from the very beginning was first for the Jew and then for the world. Because all have fallen short of the glory of God and need to be justified freely by God's grace which means that everybody gets invited to the party. So Romans 7 says there's this dark mass, it's this malignancy, it's a cancer inside of every human being. It's how he describes sin. Augustine described it a different way, would describe sin as this kind of disordered passions. The problem is that you have all these passions, but they're not being played in the right order and, and, and given the right amount of importance. It's good for you to eat, but gluttony is a problem. It's good for you to feel good about your work, but pride becomes arrogance and that's sinful. It's, it's good for you to have desire and passion, but when that steps out of bounds, so what you have to learn in living with the Spirit is how to control, how to order your passions correctly, righteously. If you fast forward, maybe the liberal view would argue take, or a liberal view, not the liberal view, a liberal view might articulate sin as systematic and institutional problems. This comes straight out of uh, Sergeant Krupke's song, 
in uh, West Side Story, which is based on Romeo and Juliet. If you haven't seen this musical, it's profound. Uh, this uh, Sergeant Krupke is kind of this fun, funky story that the Jets all sing and dance, which doesn't sound a lot like gang members, but whatever. Um, they all sing and dance, and they, they're talking about the problem of sin. And they say, well, it's the social worker's fault. It's the doctor's fault. It's the school's fault. It's the parent's fault. And they find all of these different places to place blame on the problem of sin. And they're not wrong. You cannot take one step. You cannot make one purchase in this world without participating in some way of the degradation of another human being. When I was in college, buying a ring that was cubic zirconian was like cheap. Right? That was like buying a ring at Walmart. Now, there's no problem if you bought your ring at Walmart. God bless. That's fine. But that was a problem. But now, 20 years later, you realize how much blood is actually involved in the processing of getting diamonds out of the earth. There is slave trade involved in the right to wear that ring. And all of a sudden, a manufactured diamond seems like the most, most ethical choice. It's difficult. And, and John, the, uh, the apostle, struggles with this too in the book of Revelation. Um, he talks about the mark of the beast, that there's no way to be involved in commerce in the world without dipping your toe in exploitation of some sort or the other. A liberal would say that sin is systematic and institutional, and they're not wrong. A conservative might argue the other perspective, or a fundamentalist might make the argument that actually what sin is, is it's personal. It's a decision that you make, and, and it's guilt-driven. If you, if you make the decision, if you choose to sin, then you deserve what you're going to get because you've made a bad choice. And they're not wrong either. The decision to make a sin is to hurt someone, to do, make a mistake like that, and it, and it causes harm. There's no way that you can look at your own life and not argue that that's also true. The problem with the fundamentalist view is that they're going to say all of those sins are over there. And those people are the ones that do them. And this is what Paul is trying to do in Romans 1 and Romans 2. He articulates the sin of the Gentiles, the disordered passions, and they're just doing wild, crazy things at the same time. And they're guilty of hurting one another. But at the same time, in Romans chapter 2, he says, all of you that have the law and should know better, you're sticking your nose over your neighbor's fence, you're watching all that stuff, and you're judging them, and you're guilty of pride. What we do know for certain is that sin is our destruction, both in eternity and now. But in the same breath, sin is our only hope. Sin is your only hope. Hang with me. Because we're going to turn the page from Romans chapter 7 to Romans chapter 8. And Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And you have to understand a couple of those words there. When Paul says there is now no condemnation, he's talking about that guilty verdict. He's talking about that, that change of class that moves you from, in Rome, a free person to a prisoner, a guilty person. And so when he says there is no condemnation, there's no possible way to translate that word no more strongly than you can in English right? There's no condemnation. One of my sister's favorite phrases, um, she was a judge, and one of her favorite things to say is, there is a whole lot of daylight between not guilty and innocent. 
And in her courtroom, she found a lot of people that were determined to be not guilty, but they were not innocent. When Paul says there is now no condemnation, what he means is that there is no guilt, not now, not before, not ever. It has been destroyed. It no longer exists. Human sinfulness has made us guilty, but Christ's righteousness brings no condemnation. And, and, and Jesus is uh, right in line with this too. In the book of, of Luke, Jesus is talking about prayer, and he's, he's saying like, look, you guys get it, right? If, if your child asks you for a bread, you don't give them stone. When they ask for a fish, you don't give them a scorpion. And that makes total sense. But he adds this line in Luke. He says, you who are evil, give good gifts to your kids. How much more will God give great gifts to his kids? And that really makes me pause for a minute there. Like, he didn't have to include that line, you who are evil. I mean, Jesus, we could have done without that. He's speaking to his disciples, even. You who are evil. Sin is our only hope. This is what we have to realize. Sin is our only hope. And this is the gift of Christianity. No other religion provides this. No other philosophy is going to give you this. Because without sin, there's no other category that allows us to deal with the evil in our own hearts. There's no other way to deal with the weight of sin. If you don't live without sin as your hope, denial is your only option. And everyone's going to help you do the same denial. Right? We know this is true. You hit middle age and your hair starts falling out. You start doing the comb over. None of your friends call you out on this. Right? Nobody says, uh, you're, who are you kidding, man? Nobody says that. There was a, a friend of mine that told a story. There was a man in his church that um, had had a catastrophic accident and lost the use of his legs. Uh, he was about 45 years old. And, and this man told him, uh, as he was talking to him, he said, everybody around me is telling me to have hope and to think that I will, nothing will change. He said, everybody told me it's going to be okay. And, and, and I, I just wondered, were they all blind? Could nobody see that I was now going to be in a wheelchair the rest of my life? And he said he, I, he, he just struggled with that, and it, it vexed his mind. It caused him to be depressed until one day he went to a physical therapist, and the physical therapist sat him down and said, all right, the first half of your life is over. It is dead. Now your new life begins. The physical therapist was the only person in his life that told him the truth. Because if we, don't, if we don't acknowledge the truth, if we don't hear the evangelist say over our own coffin, my Uncle Richie was a sinner, then we end up living in this life of like sin management and denial. We appear to avoid sin or engage in sin management, and that's a problem. It's like a hypochondriac. If you don't know what a hypochondriac is, it's a person who um, thinks they're sick all the time. And they're just kind of keenly aware, hyper aware of their own body and everything that's going on. And in the last probably 10 or 12 years, uh, WebMD has become like a, a, a hypochondriac's heroine. 
because they feel like a twinge in their elbow and they get on WebMD and they begin to look it up and they find the sad, sick truth that they are going to die. I have this little earache. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to die. They just, that's what, it's like a hypochondriac, they can't help it, it's their kryptonite, right? And, 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 and you'd think that a hypochondriac would go through a, a system like that where, okay, it turned out that elbow twinge really wasn't anything at all, you're fine, and they would walk out of that problem, but they can't. Because they believe in their heart that it's not the healing of their body that got them out of that, it was the worry. And so they reinforce their own kind of mistake in their mind, and they double down on worry. Somehow, I think we believe somehow, if we can just manage our own sin and keep it down and quiet enough, that somehow it's going to be okay, and we double down just like a hypochondriac. And our age is one that is desperately trying to be our authentic best. We want to be our authentic and our best. And so we curate our own authenticity. And what our world needs is someone that's willing to show up in a V-neck t-shirt and a flannel no matter what day it is. Because somehow Christ tells us who we are. Romans 8 sets us free to be your true self. And you don't have to hold the lie anymore. Tim Keller says, when you acknowledge this um, circumstance of your own sin, it not only changes your view of yourself and allows you to be uniquely free, it changes your view of everyone else. Because there's no longer good people and bad people. There's no longer faithful people and not faithful people. Everyone's sinful. Everyone has the malignancy of sin. And this humbles us enough to admit that the only difference between me and the prostitute, between me and the abusive dad or husband or boss, or between me and the Nazi, is that the seeds of evil didn't get watered in the same way. And my God, that humility is freeing. The heart of the gospel frees us to be ourselves, free from the tyranny of sin, free from societal expectations, to be grafted into a new family. It is the chemotherapy that turns that malignant tumor into something new. I want to tell you about an old movie. Um, and if you're in college or younger than me, you may not have seen it. It's called Chariots of Fire. And the way you know this movie is awesome is because one of the songs in it is always played in slow motion in every movie, good movie you've ever seen. It goes, dun, 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 dun. Okay, so you got to go see it. It's a slow movie because all the movies were slow in the 1980s. Just hang with it, okay? It's a story of two British men, and they're both... Um, sprint distance runners, and they're both trying to win the Olympic medal in France. And although these two men are training partners, they could not be more different from one another. The first man says <coughs> of the race, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And what he means by that is he has been training for his whole life for this one moment in France where he is going to run and he might be the world's fastest or he might come in dead last. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. The other runner could be not be more different. He says, God made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now you may not know this, but... The second man's sister was alive. This is a true story. The second man's sister was alive when the movie was made. And so they interviewed her and they asked her like, hey, how accurate is the movie? Can you tell us what did you think about it? 
And she said, I love the movie. I thought it was a wonderful movie, except there's one thing. They showed my brother running in the movie, and when he ran, he always had his head up like this. And nobody knew why he ran that way. You know, maybe he was trying to be more aerodynamic, or maybe like, that's just how he ran. He ran with his head like this. He's, she said they never said why he did that. He always ran with his head up. He was always smiling. What the movie didn't say is that in those moments, he worshiped as he ran. And I wonder if we live our lives somewhere in between those two men, believing that we have 10 seconds to justify our existence. Your worth is not found in you getting a promotion this year. Your worth is not found in making tenure this year. Your worth is not found in your GPA this year. None of those things can tell you who you are. You can say that those things are important, but those things will never justify your existence. What justifies your existence is the fact that God made you just the way you are. And when you live your life, you can experience his pleasure. But that's hard to hold on to. And there are a million different ways that I try to justify my existence. I have this app on my phone. It's this um, exercise app. And it, uh, it tells me how far I've moved every day. And it tells me how much I've worked out. It tells me how often I've, stand, I've stood. And uh, I've had this watch for a while. Um, actually, I know exactly how long I've had it. I've had it for 278 days. Because I've had this streak going, right? Every day, if I hit my caloric goal... It gives me a little ding and a cool little firework, and it tells me that I've done it for the day. I know that I have 278 days because yesterday I was having some allergy stuff, I got tired, and I fell asleep at like 8.30 last night. And I woke up this morning, I didn't meet the move ring, didn't close the ring, and my streak is over. And I got to confess to you, like this morning as I was getting ready to, to come here, I was also Googling, is there a hack that can make me, <laughs> like if I roll my clock back to somewhere in Russia, so it's still, you know, <laughs> Saturday over there, can I do a little workout? And I'm, I'm honestly, I'm really bummed. I'm disappointed that this happened. But closing my ring every day does not justify my existence. My life is hid in the love of God that is most clearly expressed in Christ Jesus. Paul will say, but if Christ is in you, then the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are obligated not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, and we will live. Brothers and sisters, sin is our only hope. In that text, Paul uses the word, the best translation is the mortification. 
And that's a word we don't use anymore because I think Seventeen magazine ruined it for us because they always had these letters to the editor about embarrassing things that happened to you in high school. And the last line was always the same. I was mortified. And what they mean by that is I was embarrassed. But the medieval purpose of that word was, was dead. It was to go to the mortuary. You were dead. Sin is our only hope because Jesus Christ has the ability to create the mortification of that dark malignancy to receive the power of the living Christ. Tim Keller will tell us that we are mortified by joy. We are put to death and raised to life by the joy that Jesus offers us as we walk in the Spirit. And I don't want to make this sound like it's just about you and your own kind of personal sin management problem. That's not what Paul was trying to say. We are justified by faith through grace. In the first century, there was this system of, of, of patrons and debtors. If you had this kind of system that you belong to, I think it's kind of akin to a mafia, but less, less crime. Um, you had this, this family that you were a part of and you know who your patron was and they took care of you. And if, if you had an accident, they would make it okay for you. They would they were obligated to you, but in the same sense, you were obligated to them. And it was this, you had to work for them. It was a system that bound you. And sometimes you were born into it, and sometimes you were grafted into it. And what I think what Paul is trying to say is that the church is doing something, that God is creating something new in Christ, creating a new family and a new system. He's providing you with a new spiritual chemotherapy that redeems us all. And the most beautiful part about Romans chapter 8 is that he invites you to be a part of it. When you start to receive this spiritual chemotherapy, for lack of a better term, spiritual radiation, that begins to destroy and knock down the malignancy in your heart, you start seeing these moments of grace everywhere. You see them in movies, and you hear them in books, in the face of a child, you see it everywhere. What's happening to you when that happens is God is transforming your heart, making you the image of his son, Jesus. And that's what we want to be about. There's no other hope than Jesus Christ. If you would, please stand for our benediction. I'm going to invite the prayer team up to... Uh, be able to greet you. If you'd like to have prayers after the service, someone to talk to, if it's a cup of coffee later this afternoon, they would be happy uh, to do that for you. They're going to come up. Please hear this benediction. Highland family, we are all sinners. We are going to live sinners and we are going to die sinners. And someday when we're dead, someone is going to speak the truth over us. But the deeper truth still is that Jesus Christ's blood cleanses every sin, makes you new and makes you whole, makes you worthy, makes you called. So go this week with courage and boldness and see the world God does. See the moments of grace that God provides in your life. Go in peace.